And now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Henry Weinstein. <laughs> Henry Weinstein became... Henry Weinstein became one of the founding faculty members of UC Irvine School of Law in 2008. At UC Irvine, he teaches law and journalism classes. Previously, he was a reporter for 40 years, including 30 years at the Los Angeles Times, where he was a local investigative reporter, a labor reporter, and then a legal writer for 20 years. Please give him a very, very warm welcome. Thank you. It's great to be back at the Skirball. The last time I had the good fortune to sit on this stage, it was for a panel about the Pentagon Papers, which was a, a great moment for journalism and a great moment for law in an earlier era. And it's nice to see some wonderful uh, old friends here tonight, including two great journalists up front, Jay and Linda Matthews, who are actually on the Harvard Crimson with our uh, featured guest tonight, uh, Linda Greenhouse. It's my uh, real pleasure, uh, both a personal and professional pleasure to introduce uh, Linda, who is a, clearly a shining light in the world of both legal journalism and now legal scholarship. Um, for many years, uh, Linda was the, she was the Supreme Court reporter for the New York Times for 30 years. She wrote about nearly 2,700 cases during that time. And in addition to that, she wrote major profiles about many of the justices. She also wrote a fantastic book about the evolution of one of the justices, Harry Blackman, who started out as somebody be, who was originally called the Minnesota Twin, supposedly just going to be a clone of Warren Berger, and then turned out to be a very independent voice the person who wrote Roe versus Wade and became a fierce opponent of the death penalty in the latter part of his career. Before Linda um, started covering the court for the New York Times, uh, as I said, she went to uh, Harvard. She was on the Harvard Crimson. And I guess if you're a great law student, you become a clerk to a Supreme Court justice. But in that era, if you were a great journalist in a college newspaper, you got to have a special one-year fellowship with the legendary New York Times, I mean, Washington bureau chief of the New York Times, James Reston. So she did that. She then became a political writer for several years, uh, covering the, uh, the shenanigans of the state legislature in Albany, and then got a Ford Foundation fellowship to study law at uh, Yale University for a year, and then after that she started covering the Supreme Court um, in 1978 and did it for 30 years. During the, that period of time, there was a virtually complete turnover on the court. There was only one justice that was on the court when Linda started, who was there when she finished. That was John Paul Stevens, and now he is, he is retired um, as well. Um, Linda's work... I think it would be safe to say that it was not only lucid and scholarly, it was very influential. People read Linda's columns. You could talk to judges, and they really, they were just marvel that what a good job she did of covering the court. Now, in the minds of some people, however, Linda was a bit too influential. Um, um, and and, and uh, in, particularly in the, just think back to the early 90s, um, when there was a major attempt and people thought that the, that the new conservatives on the court were going to overturn Roe versus Wade, and they got a big shock in a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey when three people that they thought would vote down Roe versus Wade, David Souter, Anthony Kennedy, and Sandra Day O'Connor, came together and formed a coalition that preserved the, the core of Roe versus Wade, a woman's right to have an, an abortion in the first trimester, but put certain restrictions on it. And not long after that, and probably not for the only time, 
The conservative columnist Thomas Sowell wrote about what he called the greenhouse effect. The greenhouse effect, which apparently meant that, some, that, that, that people, justices on the Supreme Court, would try to please her by moderating their tendencies. Moderating their tendencies. I'm, we'll, we'll ask Linda about that in a little while. I, I thought it was rather odd since I don't think David Souter ever went to a party the entire time he was in Washington. He's a rather independent fellow, but nonetheless. Now, there were other people, however, and I do want to read a passage, who thought rather differently about Linda and the quality of her, of her work. And, and again, I want to draw your attention. This is a fantastic book. As you can see, it's very dog-eared. I use it in a class I now teach at UC Irvine. It's called Becoming Justice Blackman. And I want to read what Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe said about this book. Anyone who wants to understand the inner workings of the US Supreme Court, and anyone who hopes to grasp the subtle ways that personal philosophy and psychology combine with the sometimes impersonal logic of the law to shape the outcomes of great legal battles would do well to read Linda Greenhouse's unpretentious but powerful story of Harry Blackman. Greenhouse and a jewel fully worthy of her reputation as the best journalist ever to have covered the work of the Supreme Court proves to be as able a biographer as she is a reporter. In addition to her appearance here tonight, Linda is in Los Angeles uh, for the weekend because the UCLA Law School is having a uh, conference this weekend commemorating two monumental decisions. It's the 40th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, and it's the 10th anniversary of Lawrence versus Texas, a case that uh, was designed to guarantee uh, personal privacy in the bedroom of gays and lesbians. And Linda, since you have written so extensively about Roe for so many years, I thought it would be a good place to start. Um, was a 7-2 decision in 1973. It'll be 40 years ago on, I think it's Tuesday. And most times when there's a decision that's 7-2, there isn't much of a brouhaha after that. But boy, it's been ongoing. What do you, what do you, in, in retrospect, how do you look at Roe versus Wade and do you think that women's rights to reproductive freedom are now in danger from the new court? Okay, to start with what you first said, you know, usually there's no brouhaha when it's 7-2. And actually, I mean, I'll take this chance for a little historical corrective, because I have done a lot of looking into this. And actually, when Roe came down 40 years ago from next Tuesday, there wasn't much of a brouhaha. In fact, the court was widely seen as having ratified uh, a rapidly emerging social consensus that uh, the regime of criminal abortion laws, which dated to the second half of the 19th century, was simply outdated and bad public policy. So I just had occasion to look back at what was the immediate post-Roe reaction. So newspapers in Texas, and it was a Texas law that was overturned in Roe, praised the decision. Newspapers in Georgia, and the companion case, uh, Doe against Bolton, overturned the Georgia law, praised the decision. So, okay, so what happened? Well, it's, it's, it's really very interesting. It took a number of years, but what happened was the National Republican Party saw the strong Catholic opposition. I mean, the only real opposition to Roe came from the bishops at that time uh, as an opportunity to use the abortion issue uh, in the service of party realignment. And so the Republican Party made a huge play for the urban North ethnic Catholic voters as a kind of a Northern strategy analog to the Southern strategy uh, that they'd used to peel away white voters from, uh, 
from the Democratic, uh, from their home in the Democratic Party. And it took about 15 or 20 years before that realignment really occurred. It was a top-down effort. It wasn't bottom-up. It was the party elites. Uh, I mean, people may be surprised to know, for instance, that Jerry Falwell, founder of Moral Majority and known for his anti-abortion stance, among other things, didn't preach his first sermon against abortion until 1979. John Paul Stevens was the first justice named to the court after Roe, almost three years after Roe, replacing William O. Douglas, one of the all-time most liberal justices, and he didn't get a single question about Roe at his confirmation hearing. So, you know, we look at that period through the lens of how we understand it today, but it's, a, it's really a distorting lens, and, and life then was not, uh, didn't really uh, lead to an inevitable uh, outcome that we're living with today. It's, it's a manipulated, very carefully manipulated outcome. Well, speaking of the long view, and you've clearly had a lot of time to think about the court and its, uh, and its role in American society, I want to re just read you one other, one passage of yours and just get you to reflect on it. And in an article in the Yale Law Journal, you said, to the public at large, the Supreme Court is a remote and mysterious oracle that makes occasional pronouncements on major issues of the day, then disappears from view for months at a time. The nine individuals who exercise power in its name are unaccountable and essentially faceless. Give us a little elaboration on that and, and what your thought is about what is the role that this body of nine people plays in our system of governance? Yeah, well, I mean, they certainly are faceless. I mean, you can look at any kind of poll and nobody knows who they are. Uh, you know, of course, they're not on television and that's the most people learn about what's going on in the country. Um, and they are unaccountable. Life tenure is a great thing. There's some debate about life tenure now. That's an interesting subject. We don't have to get into that. Um, so, you know, what is the role of the court? I mean, obviously the court takes up sometimes because they have to, sometimes simply because they want to and they have an agenda. Uh, some of the very toughest issues in our society sometimes because there's a kind of a democratic lockup. I mean, back in the day in the, in the Warren Court days, uh, when the court got into the reapportionment, one person, one vote area, that was because uh, the old apportionment wasn't going to reapportion itself and somebody had to do something and the court did something. Uh, sometimes today, I think the Roberts Court has a particular agenda, which is to get the government out of the role of counting people by race. And so they've this court has injected itself into ongoing conversations about affirmative action, about voting rights and so on. And, uh, you know, there's not, I don't have a kind of a little sound bite that says the Supreme Court is, mm. it's many different things. Uh, it bears close watching. And, uh, you know, I think my, my view has always been that we as citizens, not just journalists or, you know, pundits or whatever, citizens really have an obligation to try to follow it and come to some kind of, come to their own uh, better informed conclusions about it. So in the time that you covered the court, you wrote about a lot of, a lot of justices. Um, um, one of the justices who was on the court the longest uh, in the history of the country and was there I think for about the first dozen years that you were there was William Brennan. 
um, who was appointed by Eisenhower in 1956 and stayed on the court till 1990. It was one of the longest tenures ever. And when, when Brennan died in 1997, um, you said that he had a, mar a remarkable legacy, and one of his uh, colleagues, who was certainly no fan of his, um, said he thought that uh, Scalia said he thought that Brennan was the most influential judge of the, of the maybe of the 20th century or of any period. Do, do you think that's true? And also, what do you think? What are the qualities of a great justice? Well, so do I think that's true of Justice Brennan? I think it's, I think it's less true now than it was then. You know. Uh, there's been a lot of movement in those more than two decades since he left the court. I think what Justice Scalia was reflecting, and it's a way of answering your second question, is that really long after, and for years after, it would have seemed that William Brennan could speak for a majority of an increasingly conservative court, he managed to pull rabbits out of hats. Uh, you know, how did he do that? I mean, some people say it was because he was such a charismatic, genial personality and backslapping and so on. I think that's a little, a little simplistic. Um, I think what actually moves members of the court, not all the time, but I think more time than people realize, is the power of ideas uh, and, and the way one frames those ideas and anchors them in precedent as well as in what's going on today. And I think a great justice is extremely fluent with the precedent that he or she has inherited, uh, but has the ability to uh, shape or move the law in ways that are both consistent with precedent, but move in a direction where they think it should move. Well, is there anybody currently sitting on the court that you think either is now or has the potential to be a great justice? I'm going to put you on the spot on that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, it's a court of very smart people right now. Probably, you know, pound for pound, about as smart as, as the court we've had. It's not an age of, you know, sort of greatness in that sense, of big thinking. Um, you know, I, I sort of ran down the list of cases that the court has agreed to decide in the, the term that we're now in, and they've now basically just finished taking all the cases that are going to be argued and decided uh, by the summer. And, you know, most of them are not cases that great law is going to be made from. As you know, you look at them too. Um, so it's not, I just feel it's not that, you know, kind of, kind of age. I think, was it, was it Holmes who said of John Marshall that it's not so much that John Marshall was a great man, but he lived in a great age, mm -hmm. right? So... You know, maybe that's a very diplomatic way of answering your question. Well, so, well, all right. Well, some, well, some of the ones that they're going to take up this year may not be a big deal, but other ones clearly are. And there are some things, although we know that abortion has been a hotly contested subject for years, there are other things I think that some people took for granted that now appear to be under threat. And one case that, that, that they're considering now that I'd like you to talk a little bit is that there's a frontal challenge to uh, one of Lyndon Johnson's singular achievements, the Voting Rights Act of uh, 1965, which actually meant that African Americans and other people of color didn't just have a right on the books to vote, but they actually got to vote, and now this seems to be under threat in some respect in a case in Alabama. Tell us about that case. Okay, so that's a challenge to not, actually not the entire right. Voting Rights Act, but Section 5 of the, of the Voting Rights Act, which is what's known as the preclearance provision. So this says 
there's, there's a formula that Congress adopted that means that much of the South and some urban counties in the North and West, I think part of LA County, uh, cannot make any change in their voting procedures in the location of po polling place or the timing or the qualifications or whatever without getting permission from either the Justice Department or a special federal court. Uh, so that's been challenged as uh, no longer congruent with the power of Congress to enforce this against the states. And without going into a lot of doctrinal stuff, the Rehnquist Court uh, was really busy reining in the power of Congress to invoke its power under the 14th Amendment to pass legislation uh, enforcing the guarantees of equal protection and due process. So this has all kind of come home to roost. And uh, the court had a chance three years ago, there was another challenge. Uh, the court was asked to uh, declare Section 5 basically outdated, unconstitutional because it's outdated. Uh, and they walked up very close to it and somebody blinked, whether it was Justice Kennedy or Chief Justice Roberts, I don't know. Somebody blinked and they punted and now it's back. So Even um, though the Congress overwhelmingly reaffirmed this right, law Congress, the last time it came up. Right, I think uh, six years or so ago, Congress said, over, the vote, Section 5 has always been term limited. It's not a permanent piece of legislation. It's been uh, reenacted by Congress, renewed by Congress, I think four times and upheld repeatedly by the Supreme Court. So the last time they did this was in the Bush administration and both houses passed it overwhelmingly. President Bush signed it. The Bush Justice Department defended it. Uh, and it didn't seem to be very controversial, but there are some uh, right-wing funded um, little foundations that go around looking for plaintiffs to bring these challenges. And that's what happened uh, in this case. So it's really, um, it's a fascinating test for the Roberts Court and it's a very complicated issue. So the law was upheld by a three-judge panel of the uh, Federal Appeals Court in DC. Two judges voted to uphold it. The other judge took attack, Judge Williams, uh, that I think is a forecast of what the Supreme Court's gonna do, in my opinion. He said, we don't have to decide whether Congress had the power to enact, or still has the power to enforce Section 5. All we have to do is find that the current formula that uh, treats some states differently than other states is itself outdated. So we should get rid of this formula and we should remand to Congress to come up with a new formula and then everything will be fine. Well, you and I know, or everybody in this room knows, that Congress is not capable, <laughs> absolutely not capable of coming up with a new formula. So if that should be what the Supreme Court does, Section 5 will die a very undignified death and the court's fingerprints won't quite be on it. So I think that would be a very appealing uh, tack for the current majority to take. Including the Chief Justice, who's indicated he has a lot of hostility towards Section 5. I think uh, primarily including the Chief Justice, be very appealing to him. Well, speaking of the Chief Justice not wanting to get his fingers dirty, let's turn to the case that probably was the most watched case of the last term of the Supreme Court, the, the challenge uh, brought against uh, President Obama's Affordable Care Act, the health care 
law. And um, in an article uh, a few months before the case was decided, you wrote a pretty trenchant column saying that you, uh, you thought that, uh, uh, that the argument that the individual mandate was uh, improper use of congressional power was uh, rhetorically powerful but analytically very weak. And you then went on to say that there was no there there in that argument. Now, uh, clearly, the, the majority um, uh, disagreed with you on right. that particular point. Doesn't mean they were right. I, I, uh, <laughs> yes, you sound like my friend Judge Reinhardt, um, <laughs> who frequently says that. Um, but what I going on about that, though, was is that, but then, it, then Justice Roberts, though, found, I guess, his own rabbit in the hat was he said that, well, they could do this under the taxing power. So a lot of people that supported the law were happy with the outcome, but they're very fearful of the long-term consequences of the decision because the court said that, uh, you know, that the Congress couldn't use the commerce power to do this, and that has uh, seemingly portentous implications mm. for other things. I actually don't think so. I think... Um what, at least what the Roberts' opinion, and he's, of course, the fifth vote to find that there was no commerce authority. If you take the Roberts' opinion at, at his word, he treats the Affordable Care Act as kind of a one-off because he emphasizes what the challengers have been emphasizing, that this is unprecedented, this has never happened before, there's never been anything like this, and blah, blah, blah. But he's, he distinct, so he distinguishes this law from those instances where uh, Congress has exercise, has, the, where the Supreme Court has endorsed congressional exercise of commerce power, Wickard against Filburn, which was the case where Congress upheld this law that said that uh, this farmer, Wickard or Filburn, whichever one, uh, you know, couldn't grow his own wheat for his own consumption. Uh, all that remains good law. So that, uh, you know, going forward, all Congress has to do, again, assuming Congress can or will do anything, that's a big assumption, but in the future, assuming they wanted to, is um, do something like the penalty on the mandate and call it a tax, and it's constitutional. So I don't actually see, I don't see much result beyond this case from the Commerce Clause holding. It's a little trickier with the Spending Clause provision. Remember, the court also, by a vote of seven to two, uh, two of the more liberal justices joined the Chief Justice in this, uh, said that um, the part of the law that requires states under the spending, Congress's spending power to buy into the new uh, Medicaid eligibility plan exceeded Congress's power. And that was the first time, I believe, in history, or at least in modern history, that the court has ever invalidated a spending clause enactment by Congress. So that, we don't know what the consequences are of that. That's something to, to watch. Okay. Fair enough. So one of the few times, or the, the few occasions, that most Americans get a chance to see any of these people up close, at least the new ones, is when they have a confirmation hearing. And uh, clearly, there, 25 years ago or so, there was a very uh, hotly contested confirmation hearing involving Robert Bork. Uh, the confirmation process seems to have been uh, um, forever um, altered by that. And I want to ask you a, a slightly, perhaps, naive question, which is, do you think that we'll ever get to hear um, any candor um, in confirmation hearings? Because the confirmation hearings now seem to be most memorable for um, 
uh, one off lines, uh, the most memorable one in the last confirmation hearing was when uh, Senator Graham uh, asked uh, Elena Kagan about the, uh, the, you know, the Christmas bomber on the airplane, and she said, well, uh, like most uh, Jews, I was at a Chinese restaurant on Christmas. And that, right. was the most, that was the most memorable line, probably from the entire hearing. Uh, right. It seems like most of the time now, the nominees feel that they have to uh, just totally duck and weave in, 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 in order to survive. And if you listen, I mean, I was obviously happy Sonia Sotomayor got confirmed, but if you listen to her confirmation hearing, it was like Pretty judging was one plus one equals two. Yeah, yeah. There's more to it than that. Yes, of course. So your question is, will it ever change? So, you know, really every confirmation hearing or every era of confirmation hearings, I think, is the product of the particular dynamic of the time. So, you know, when you said uh, the Bork hearings, you know, changed the confirmation process forever, well, I don't know, because, uh, you know, when President Clinton nominated Ruth Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer, uh, they were confirmed almost unanimously. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I used to have the idea, or I used to answer this question by saying, as long as a president doesn't seek to use the power of confirmation to sort of press beyond the bounds of the existing political consensus, it'll be fine. Witness Ruth Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer, named by Bill Clinton. But that's changed. Uh, I think what we saw in the Sotomayor and the Kagan hearings is that even though there was absolutely no reason to vote against these two nominees. I think Sotomayor got seven Republican votes and Kagan got five. Why? You maybe read the column I wrote a couple weeks ago. Uh, the NRA weighed in and uh, decided for the first time in their history that not only were they going to oppose a Supreme Court nominee, but they were going to, quote, score the vote. Scoring the vote is, is uh, inside the Beltway jargon for adding that vote to the list of the report card that an interest group, and they all do it left and right, uh, puts out at the end of the session saying these are the votes that matter to us and here's how your representative voted. And for the NRA to score a vote uh, scares the daylights out of Republican uh, senators. And so in the Sotomayor case, a bunch of senators who the White House had had reason to believe we're going to vote for, you know, this very appealing nominee, Sonia Sotomayor, just jumped ship as soon as the NRA, uh, you know, burped. So um, there is a new dynamic, and it's a, it's a dangerous one. It's a very tricky one. And do you think that it's, I mean, are there other groups in addition to the NRA that you think um, people are scared of in terms of getting a bad recording out of their voter? Is this just primarily um, the No, I think the, the NRA, NRA is sui generis, and... Um, uh, it's very cynical what's going on and you know I wrote about it in, in part because I think people aren't really aware of it um, and uh, and daylight would do some good in this uh, in this instance so in recent years um, the, the the Warren court which was in existence from 1953 to 1969 Eisenhower appointed Earl Warren who had been the district attorney in California, then the attorney general, then the governor, vice presidential nominee when Thomas Dewey ran for president. I don't think anybody was expecting very much. He'd been considered primarily a, modern, a, moderate, a moderate governor. Um, and then all of a sudden you had all these major things happen. You had Brown versus Board of Education. You had the one person, one vote decision. 
You had uh, the Miranda case, which uh, is probably, perhaps, maybe the most famous case. It's sort of it's on so many television shows now. Some, has somebody been read their Miranda rights? You had separation of church and state, and in uh, a, a case that's another big anniversary this year, Gideon, the right of a defendant in a criminal case to be guaranteed a lawyer. And you even had a case. You had a case coming out of the state of Virginia, aptly named Loving, which knocked out a miscegenation law, which years later made it possible for a severe critic of the Warren court, Clarence Thomas, to marry a white woman. So, um, uh, and now, so looking in retrospect, do you think that the, that the, that the Warren court uh, did a lot of good things, or were, they too far, or were they too far beyond where the mass of the populace was? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, they, they, like any court, they were anchored in their time and place. And, you know, they had some major blind spots. For instance, women's rights. The Warren Court ended without sex discrimination having been deemed by the Supreme Court to be a constitutional violation. That came in the Berger years. That came as a result of arguments made to the court by Ruth Ginsburg. Right. So, you know, it, it's, the, the Warren Court picked their spots, and they picked the spots that they felt impelled by the circumstances of the age. I mean, Brown against Board of Education is a perfect example. Baker against Carr, the reapportionment case. Uh, the criminal procedure cases were very contested. I mean, Miranda was five to four. Um, so, you know, they were kind of working at the margins. And certainly, when Nixon ran for president in 1968, uh, he very successfully ran against the Warren Court. Uh, it happened to coincide with a real increase in crime in the streets, uh, fear of the populace that, you know, crime was out of control. Now, this was hardly the fault of the Warren Court. It was the result of all kinds of demographic and sociological causes, obviously, but it was real easy for politicians to point a finger at the court, and it was very successful. So, uh, you know, did the court go too far, or did the court uh, become a convenient sort of whipping post uh, at a time of tumultuous social and political change. You know, you could, you could debate that. What are some of the other cases that you're watching closely this year? Well, we talked about Shelby County, the voting rights case. So the other, the pair twin of that uh, in, in the race area is um, Fisher against the University of Texas, which is a challenge to affirmative action at the University of Texas, and obviously this state and these public universities, you've been through a lot of this. Um, but you know, back in 2003, when the Supreme Court, in an opinion by Justice O'Connor, upheld affirmative action at the University of Michigan, the court indicated that it wasn't going to get back into this area for 25 years, and they would think that 25 years from then, the country could have worked out some accommodation of this issue. So it's a little strange that in 2012, I think is, what, nine years later, uh, we are favored with this case, which was a purely voluntary thing for the court to take. There was no, no reason for the court to take it, other than that they didn't, the majority didn't like the opinion by the Federal Appeals Court in Texas, which had upheld, which had felt itself bound by the Michigan decision to uphold uh, what the University of Texas was doing. So again, just like the Voting Rights Act case, it's a question of how far will they go. Um, you know, I don't think there were five votes to get rid of affirmative action sort of wholesale. 
but I'd be very surprised if the Texas plan uh, survives uh, Supreme Court review. I'd like to ask you a follow-up question about that case, sort of relating to uh, journalism and the way journalism is, 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 is practiced. I think we were both you know, full-time journalists for you know, close, close to 40 years. Um, and now um, that uh, in your new role as a, both a professor and a, I believe it's twice a month, the column for the opinionator section online of the New York Times, you've got a different voice. And I want to read a couple of passages of the things you wrote and ask you to reflect on them. In your, 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 uh, your column about the hearing on this case, the Fisher case, you said, your primary reaction was one of embarrassment for the court and also for Texas. You went on to say that the hostile tone of conservative justice, including Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Scalia, led you to the conclusion that, quote, ridicule rather than a search for understanding was the name of the game. You continued by noting that the justices' questions totally ignored elements of the university's brief and its historical perspective, as you said, coming only a few years after the University of Michigan Law School case in which Justice O'Connor said affirmative action would be needed for another 25 years. And then perhaps even more significantly, you put in a contextual point that was very striking. You said that on the same day, within a mile away in the federal appeals court, three judges on the District of Columbia Circuit which is hardly a liberal court, wrote an opinion, and the lead guy was Brett Kavanaugh, who's a very conservative judge, and they struck down the South Carolina's new voter identification law. Under Section 5 of the Voting Under Rights Section Act. Under Section 5 Voting Rights Act. And you said, and you quoted Kavanaugh's opinion, which emphasized that, quote, racial insensitivity, racial bias, and indeed outright racism are still problems throughout the United States as of 2012. The long march for equality for African Americans is not finished. And then you asked in the column, would it have been too much to expect something similar from Chief Justice Roberts and his allies on the Supreme Court bench, some acknowledgement in passing that the Texas regents didn't pluck the notion of affirmative action out of thin air and were trying to do what they believe was not only appropriate, but under the Supreme Court precedents, perfectly legal. That was a profound and disturbing question. Similarly, in a column last May about the Supreme Court hearing on Arizona's controversial immigration law, you wrote as followed. Pouring over the argument transcripts and brief, what finally came through as most deeply troubling was this. The failure of any participant in the argument, justice or advocate for either side, to affirm the simple humanity of Arizona's several hundred thousand undocumented residents. You said the argument was all trees and no forest. Both of these columns were strikingly candid. You clearly weren't shooting from the hip. Those columns were the product of, of years of work. And talk a little bit about what it's like to have the freedom, I guess, to say, shoot your mouth off a bit more than you used to, and whether, given the, the degree of experience you had covering the court when you were still at the Times, whether you should have been given more freedom to be more opinionated then. Well, it's <coughs> excuse me. I've actually found writing the column, I mean, it is liberating and sometimes it's thrilling, but it's really hard work because what I quickly realize is, you know, why should anybody care about my opinion unless it's backed up by, uh, you know, evidence and, and reporting. So um, even though I just write twice a month, I'm working on these all the time, I'm thinking about them all the time. Uh, 
And it's a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge I'm glad I have because it keeps me, you know, anchored to what the court is doing, which is very important to me. Um, so do I wish I had that kind of freedom back in the old days? I mean, I, in my later years covering the court, I wrote a lot of just plain analysis. And it was basically my take on things. It wasn't phrased in that kind of, you know, in-your-face manner. But I deliberately avoided what I think a lot of people feel obliged to do in journalism, which is to find an expert or somebody with a title to say what you wish you could say, <laughs> but you say it through them and you distance yourself. And that's a game that, you know, I can't say I never played it, although I can't remember ever playing it, but I deliberately didn't play it for many years uh, toward the end of my career because I just figured, why do this? Um, so, you know, I had my ways, not only in the way I structure stories, but in the stories that I chose to write um, in getting my, you know, my take across. I mean, my view always was, I, I was never sort of trying to tell my readers what to think, which would be highly presumptuous, and, you know, why should they take my word for it? But I was trying to empower them to think for themselves based on the fruits of my hard-earned knowledge about what was going on. And so what's, you've obviously had a pretty significant change of career. You, after being a journalist for 40 years, you're now, you're now a teacher at uh, our, one of the most distinguished, arguably the most distinguished law, law school in the United States, Yale. What's, tell us what it's like being a teacher and what it's like uh, reacting on a daily, act, interacting on a daily basis with, uh, with students. Well, as, as, you know, as, as you have found out, because you made the same transition, uh, we're very lucky. It's very wonderful. So, uh, you know, my students are younger than my daughter. And, um, so are mine. Yeah, which is not, you know, there's nothing strange about that. But so I had, you know, I had somehow in advance thinking of it, thinking that I would be, you know, sort of like their mother or, you know, there would be a great distance between us. Uh, but I actually quickly came not to feel that way. I much more feel that we're all uh, sort of partners in a journey of discovery or learning, and I know some things that they don't know. They know things that I don't know. I mean, I have number, I mean, Yale is unusual, maybe, but I have a number of students with PhDs or all kinds of experience in government. Uh, there's a lot of students there with uh, national security backgrounds and stuff. And I learn from them, and I enjoy them, and uh, have a lot of fun with them, actually. And so it's been uh, unexpectedly uh, great. And how would you describe your colleagues on the, on the faculty compared to the reporters that you used to work with? What, what is it they're similar and different? Well, I mean, if I had a big surprise, and I shouldn't necessarily have been so surprised, because my sister who is chair of the anthropology department at Princeton, is a lifelong academic, and her husband is a law professor, and he's an academic. And they always were telling me how hard they worked, you know, and I said, yeah, right, right. Um, <laughs> but, um, yes. My colleagues work so hard. I mean, they, you know, and I do the same thing. I mean, working basically all the time. I mean, I've heard people say, you know, I'm so glad classes are over, because now I can get to work. Meaning, you know, there are articles in their books and their committee service and this and that. So um, my colleagues are a very hard-working group of people, I'd say, 
harder working on mass than many reporters. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. right. I mean, even, even, even New York Times reporters. Well, you know, I mean, in daily journalism, it wasn't so much true on my beat because I carried around a lot of stuff in my mind all the time. But, you know, say general assignment, you know, you work hard during the day, you turn in your story, and the next day begins again, and you don't carry it over. But when you're working kind of in the long term thing, like, you know, my colleagues who are, you know, deeply invested in major scholarship, it never stops. It never stops. There's no vacation. So it's really interesting. So in that sense, it very much parallels what you've been doing for a long time as you were carrying around all this stuff about the court in your head, and now you're just exploring the court in a different way. Yes, true. I mean, sure. so, so I mean, in that sense, though, it would seem like it might have been a more, a more comfortable transition. Ah, uh, but, um, you know, I mean, I'm not... A constitutional scholar, and I can't pretend to be one. But I'm so I'm trying. So I work hard to sort of, you know, hold up my end of a constitutional conversation. Uh, so I am working harder now than I did before. Yeah. Good. Well, I think we should now give give those of you out in the audience the chance to uh, <laughs> ask some questions. Uh, could you please address the area of recusal of Supreme Court justices? Um, when they should recuse themselves from cases, what the rules should be, and uh, how transparent they should be when there's an issue about whether they're doing it or not. I'm not a big fan of recusal, and I think uh, justices should recuse as little as possible. Um, I strongly objected to the uh, campaign by the Alliance for Justice and so on that, you know, Justice Scalia should recuse from whatever it was, from, they should redo Citizens United because he broke bread with, what's his name out here, Koch. Um, you know, that way lies madness. I mean, justices live in the world, we know they do. Uh, turnabout is fair play, and uh, had that campaign succeeded, of course it had no chance, uh, the shoe would be on the other foot soon enough. So, um, I'm perfectly happy with the current rule, which is that any financial interest, even a single share of stock, is disqualifying. Um, and there's other pieces of it, too. But I would, I would read recusal rules as narrowly as possible. And I think they're transparent enough for my, for, for my taste. There was a suggestion that the author of the Affordable Care Act decision, which I confess I have not read, changed his mind at some point over the course of the deliberations and decided to uphold it instead of vote against it. Um, and I, I guess I'm harboring a suspicion that that was done for mainly political reasons. Could you comment on that? I think there was a change during the course of the decisional process. In fact, the day the opinion came down, um, I wrote a column about it saying there were indications just from the way the opinion the various opinions were structured, that the Chief Justice had not started out to uphold the mandate, the penalty as a tax. Um, I don't know what happened inside the court. If I had a guess, but I, I, this is just a guess, I have no reason to think it's right, but the, sort of where the, where the rubber was gonna meet the road in the final decision, if the penalty had fallen, was the question of what they call severability. So if the penalty falls, what else falls with it? And the government had argued that if the penalty falls, 
what had to fall was uh, guaranteed issue, right, and community rating. But the, the other thousand sections of the statute, you know, you can insure your child up to 26 and various other things, uh, were not affected by the penalty, uh, and they would stand. The four justices to the chief justice's right, so Kennedy, uh, Scalia, Alito, and Thomas, wrote an opinion saying the entire statute falls, okay? And I have to think that the Chief Justice looked at that when that started circulating and said, I can't go there. I don't think it's right, uh, you know? And if that's the only way, if that's the logical consequence of striking down the statute, there's gotta be a way to uphold it. And he found safe harbor in, in the tax holding. That's, you know, that's a theory anyway. You mentioned Citizens United before, and I, I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on that in a couple of respects. Number one, the corporations are people idea, and you know, for, you know, that's probably true for some purposes, not for others. Uh, and then secondly, uh, uh, whether you think that there is a true uh, fundamental view that the First Amendment is kind of paramount to uh, all other considerations, including political fairness. And number three, where do we, uh, is there any way of, you know, changing that result other than through changing the membership of the court? To answer your last question, first, no, there's no way of uh, uh, persuading the current court to change its view on this. That was tried last year with a quite compelling case out of Montana and, and failed. So, you know, about Citizens United, um, in the hands of this court, the First Amendment uh, is sort of running amok and has become a major tool of deregulation across a variety of areas. Uh, and it's, uh, it's taken a while for people to sort of catch on to that because many of us uh, from the progressive side of the street, you know, the First Amendment isn't on the law good and the more speech there is the better, and, and we're used to standing up and saluting when the court upholds something or strikes down something by invoking the First Amendment. But I think this now has to be watched with great care uh, because um, certainly from an originalist point of view, which some of the conservatives on the court claim to be expounding, uh, the framers of the Constitution certainly didn't think of the free speech guarantee in the way that it's being used uh, by the current court. So I think there's... Um, you know, there's a real issue. And I'll say just one more thing, which is that I think one thing that's unfortunate about um, the public understanding of Citizens United is it was one of these, Henry read my long ago article that uh, Supreme Court decisions seem to come like a bolt out of the blue. Citizens United seemed to come like a bolt out of the blue. But it actually was simply the culmination of many intermediate steps going back a long time, not only corporations or people, which as you point out, you know, that's neither here nor there. It depends what you make of it. But uh, the notion that, that corporate speech is a First Amendment value uh, goes back to the 1970s, uh, a time when no, no member of the Citizens United Court was sitting on the court. So, uh, you know, these things kind of mount up and then all of a sudden they reach a sort of criticality and then people pay attention. I would love to hear you, or wish you could expound more about your concern concerning the NRA. I mean, that was a moment of gravitas in your own presentation tonight that I'd like to explore. On the NRA issue? So, 
what happened with the NRA is that um, I, when uh, President Obama nominated Sonia Sotomayor, it looked like she was going to get confirmed by a wide margin of both parties. And uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, uh, took a dim view of this, and his challenge was how to get members of his caucus not to vote to confirm this very appealing Supreme Court nominee. So he went to the NRA and said, we need a favor from you. We need you to come out and oppose Sotomayor and score the vote. And the NRA said yes. So, you know, it was a kind of uh, in cahoots deal between the Republicans in the Senate and the NRA. And, um, and this has been happening sort of down the chain of judicial nominations. They are whole, the NRA has blocked uh, an Obama nominee to the appeals court in DC, a woman named Caitlin Halligan. They came out against her uh, for no reason. Uh, she's a 45 or six year old <clears throat> former Supreme Court clerk, fabulous resume, pure Supreme Court material if she ever got on the DC circuit, which is kind of a launching pad. Um, and the Republicans don't want her there, and the NRA has opposed her, and she's been filibustered three times, and the president just resubmitted her nomination a fourth time. Uh, you know, and to the extent that people don't pay attention to this, the NRA gets away with it. So I've just been trying to expose it a little bit. As a longtime observer of the Supreme Court, do you, are you willing to make a prediction on how they will rule on gay marriage and Proposition 8 in March? I'm fairly confident they're going to strike down DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, I think there are five votes for that. Uh, on Perry, on the Prop 8 case, um, I don't know, actually. Um, you know, there's many ways they can go. They can go the way Judge Reinhardt went for the Ninth Circuit and treat it as a California-specific issue. And that would be, you know, sort of an intermediate step that the court could take and it wouldn't uh, necessarily, ha it would have great symbolic importance, but it wouldn't necessarily um, uh, mandate same-sex marriage around the country. Um, so, you know, I don't know. The court may punt. There's these jurisdictional issues that they've identified. Uh, you know, is there standing, is, is the case even justiciable given the, you know, I mean, everyone in this audience knows all this. Um, given the state's failure to defend Prop 8 and the Prop 8 proponents coming in and having been granted standing to carry on the appeal. And that doesn't mean, I mean, they have standing under California state law. The state Supreme Court tells us that doesn't mean they have constitutional standing from the Supreme Court's perspective. So there's just many off-ramps to uh, a major ruling on, on this case. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I don't have a strong prediction. Will Obama get to be nominating a Supreme Court justice uh, in the upcoming couple of years that he has? And are you so well connected that you even have guesses as to who he might nominate? Of course you are. Um, I think it's entirely possible that we're not going to see any imminent retirements. Uh, but if there were one, I think there's a real challenge. Because the Republicans have been so successful in depriving uh, the Democrats of the kind of bench, you know, a deep bench uh, from which one might pick uh, Supreme Court nominees. Now, of course, 
as we see from Elena Kagan's nomination, she was not a sitting judge, and, and a Supreme Court nominee doesn't have to be one. Um, and as, you know, as Henry mentioned, Earl Warren had never been a judge of any kind when he became Chief Justice of the United States. So, uh, but, but the Republicans are you know, clearly playing a game to keep Supreme Court likely people off the federal courts, and that's, um, that's unfortunate. John Roberts, in his uh, Senate confirmation hearing, very cogently said that he would confirm and he reaffirmed uh, stare decisis. And yet it didn't take him very much time um, before he started to overturn cases. And Citizens United uh, may have been incremental in relation to some of the previous ones, but it overturned settled law going back 100 years. And maybe I don't read the right columns, but I'm wondering, I never really saw the sort of transient criticism of him for that switch, um, switch and bait uh, exercise. Uh, uh, I'm not talking about the criticism of Citizens United per se or other cases, but for that very line of being so, he and others, being so ready to overturn uh, settled law. That's my first question. The second question is, um, I seem to have read enough uh, about Thomas uh, several cases involving him, uh, conflict of interest, um, inaccurate um, uh, declarations to the Supreme Court in his annual returns or to, to the revenue people um, uh, going over a period of years. And, and yet I, I never saw, maybe it existed, but I never saw any attempt to impeach him um, or to suggest impeachment. And so is impeachment something that doesn't exist for practical purposes if, if you can't even consider it in a case like that? I think impeachment is a very bad way to go. Uh, we have a tradition in this country when it comes to judges, and that was established very early, that the only case in which a judge can be impeached is some kind of actual criminality out, off the bench. There's been maybe eight or 10 or 11 federal judges impeached over time, and they've been um, you know, they've been convicted of, of crimes. So, uh, you know, a lot of people don't like Justice Thomas and don't like his positions and have tried to, uh, you know, make this into something that it's not, in my opinion. So, um, so your first question about Chief Justice Roberts and stare decisis. Uh, I think if you go back and read the transcript, he did not promised the country that he would never overturn settled precedent. I think what he said is what they always say, which is that uh, stare decisis, which is the legal jargon for standing by that which was decided that is upholding precedent, uh, is the doctrine that's entitled to respect, because obviously you can't have the world made new every time uh, an appellate court gets a case, but that, uh, you know, there are many times in history, for better or worse, and sometimes for better, uh, that the court has uh, reversed itself and taken a new view of the matter. So um, I, I'd be really, really surprised if you could point to language in the confirmation hearing where Chief Justice Roberts said he would never overturn precedent. But in your own opinions, on the question of, of the lifetime appointment uh, question, I think it's worthy of some commentary, if you would be good enough. Good yeah, so the question is, what about lifetime appointments? appointments? So, of course, the Constitution confers life tenure on all federal judges, and, um, you know, that's a, a way of guaranteeing judicial independence. Within the last 
five or eight years, there's been a very interesting sort of academic debate over whether that's really such a good idea. Uh, you know, it's interesting that many emerging democracies around the world that have adopted constitutional courts and have borrowed many aspects of our own system, not a single one of them has adopted life tenure for their high court judges. They all have either a term of years or an age limit. Uh, of the 50 states, there's only one state, Rhode Island, that has life tenure for its state Supreme Court justices. So, um, you know, it's, life tenure is not necessarily the only way to have a good independent court. Uh, and there's, there are various proposals. I mean, the most obvious thing is you can only change it by constitutional amendment, but there's other kind of workarounds that the court would grow and the nine most junior members would serve actively for 18 years, staggered, uh, and then would go into a kind of a senior position as judges on the courts of appeals do. They, quote, go senior, they take senior status and they're not, they're not full-time anymore. Um, so, you know, I've been kind of intrigued by this and I think it's um, worth having a, you know, citizen's conversation about. I don't think, I haven't come to rest on, you know, yay or nay, but it's worth, it's worth talking about. Thank you so much. Big round of applause. Thank you.